going to continue on in the book of Esther, and, and last week, um, Pastor did such an incredible job opening up, and it was just such, a, such an encouraging message, because if you look at chapter one, it's full of some pretty, pretty dark, nasty stuff. Um, and just to recap just a little bit, where, where it all began was you start in chapter one, and you've got this young king named Xerxes, who he's... Um, Esther, the book of Esther is this narrative story, so it's telling the story of Esther and what's happening, and it sets it up by this young King Xerxes who is out and he's having this party, and he's throwing this absolute rager, and he, you know, makes these decrees that everybody should get drunk, they should lose their senses, and, and while doing that, he just makes some really dark, evil, poor decisions, and he makes the decision in his drunkenness that, I mean, he's going to call for his queen, and he's going to call her out in front of the people and wants to... Um, showcase her and have her dance around and just, just some really nasty stuff. But in doing so, um, the Queen Vasti, she being this, this bold, strong, incredible woman that she is, knowing even the consequences of it, she says like, hey, I know my value, I know my worth, like it's not going to happen, I'm not doing that. Um, and she refuses the king's invitation which that in itself could lead to death. And so, I mean, right there, you know, we just applaud the fact of her being willing to step out in faith and do that. But leading to that, then, you know, all of the king and all of his men begin to freak out. And they're like, oh my gosh, we've got to fix this. We have to do something. Otherwise, all the women are going to revolt and follow after her image. So the king makes a decree to banish her, the queen, from his presence, to strip her of her royalty, and that's where we're left off with the end of chapter one, which takes us into chapter two. In chapter two today, we're going to pick up right there in verse one when it says, later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Like the king appointed commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem in the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. So his Council, the men around him, they're, they're giving him this, hey, here's this idea, here we have, and it says, the end of verse 4, that this advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Now, if you jump down a little bit deeper in the text in verse 16, it actually tells us that there's this four-year time period that takes place between chapter 1 and chapter 2. That there's four years of this, that, that chapter one, you have all of this darkness and this wickedness and you're, you're wanting this justice to come, but yet there's the four-year time period that takes place before chapter two ever comes. And during that time, the king had gone out and he had tried to invade Greece and he failed epically and he was very unsuccessful. And so he's coming back in. And I don't know how many of you out there played sports, um, but have you ever gone and you're like, hey, we're gonna go out, you walk onto the field with all this confidence and then you take a huge L and you're just like defeated and embarrassed and you walk off and like that's where the king was at. He'd gone out to war, he thought he was going to conquer Greece, he comes back, he's defeated, he's depressed, he remembers the decree he made about his queen, and I don't know what it was in the moment, I don't know if he was missing it, regretting her, or what it was, but in the moment it's like, okay, all of the council around him is like, we've got to change things, we've got to do something different, like we've, we've got to 
get the king out of this funk. So he makes this decree to gather up all these women, and it says that um, historians say that this was about around 400 women that would be a part of this process. That so 400 women from all over would come in and be in this process to have the chance to be chosen as the new queen, which introduces us to Esther. And now verse 5 is where we'll pick up and introduce Esther. And listen, as we dive into this, there are a lot of crazy names in the Bible, okay? So listen, I don't need any judgment out there if I say it wrong or this, that, or the other. Like, you go read through some of the Old Testament, okay? And if you, you kill it, props to you, okay? But it's not me. So I'm going to take a drink of water and try and get this to the best of my ability. But verse 5, it says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive who Jehoachin, king of Judah. Then Mordecai had a cousin named Hudassah, whom he had brought up because she, because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. And then when the king orders this edict has been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special needs. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So finally, here we are, we're in chapter two, and it's not until verse seven of chapter two that we're finally introduced to the main character of this whole book, which is Esther. And when I, when I read this and, and I look at Esther, um, man, Esther is just somebody that it seems like reading her story, man, she, like life has just dealt her some really tough cards. Like, it's funny because I feel like in today's world, a lot of us walk around with just this like low-grade anger and we don't even really know why like we're just it just seems like people are just mad at everything all of a sudden and uh, oftentimes I'm like man like we don't all have to be cranky all the time but if I were to give a pass to anyone I feel like Esther deserves it like she has had a rough go about it it says that she was born into exile by Jewish parents so already she's born into exile then both of her parents died which left her to be raised by her cousin. Now, I don't know what that situation was like. I mean, later in the text, it tells us that like her and Mordecai, they did have this good relationship, but even still, I'm sure there's even some own issues within that of just having to being raised by her cousins and, and not having her parents. And it says they lived in a foreign and hostile land. Now, they wasn't Phoenix, but it was probably similar. It was a desert. Um, and um, I'm sure it was, you know, 120 degrees outside for them as well. Um, Lord rebuke the weather. Um, and so she's dealing with all of this. And then it says, and now she's taken by compulsion into the king's harem. And we don't really know exactly, like it doesn't really tell us if all 400 of these women were, you know, compulsed into doing this. If some of them chose to go into, the, into this process to try to get a better life, a better situation. But we know that all of this wasn't the whole process, it wasn't just this great and beautiful thing. Verse 12 tells us, though, it says, Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, 
She had to complete 12 months of beauty treatment that was prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Um, Scholar says that there's two reasons why there's this kind of 12-month process. One, the first is to make sure that none of them were pregnant, that they didn't know about, and then the king is, you know, left with a child that they're claiming is his. So it's to make sure that there's absolutely no kids that aren't the kings. And the second is, they lived in a desert land, and they said that people were hot and sweaty, and that they smelled really bad during this time, right? They didn't have deodorant. Um, I just served at BBS last week, and let me tell you, it was hot last week, and those fourth and fifth grade boys stank, okay? (laughs) By the end of the day, it was like, all right, I get it. And now they're still like, you know, hopefully their parents are making them shower. They didn't show up that way, but goodness, I couldn't imagine this time. And so there's this process they have to go through, and, and it's this 12-month process. And hear me out, like part, part of it, you could read it and you'd be like, hey, listen, Granger, now that doesn't sound too bad. Like you're telling me a year-long spa treatment? Like, listen, I'll tell you guys right now, men, if you've never had a spa day, you need to humble yourselves right now, Okay. You need to take your pride of I'm a man's man and set it on the table and go get you a spa day because I promise you'll walk out feeling so much better, all right? Like you go in, if you've never had a spa, like it smells good in there. Like they're just, the smells alone just make you feel fresh and clean. They put a little steam on you. It's just go have a spa day. So you read this and you're like a year long spa treatment. Like I could be for that, but it's also not always exactly what it seems because during this, like the, these women that were, you know, brought into this, again, some may have been by compulsion, some, they may have chose this, but, but this process, verse 13, let's look into it a little bit. It says, and this is how you should go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from a harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem with the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So what this is saying is it's describing this process. These women will go in and being a part of this, man, they're brought into this harem and doing so, man, they are stripped from their families. They're taken from their families, from uh, their community where they belonged and they're brought into this harem to go through this process. And it's not just like this big beauty pageant that lasted and then all of a sudden it's over and everybody heads home. No, once they went in, they were there. There's no returning home. There's no going back to where they came from and they entered into this. And so out of the 400, 399 were there just waiting for their turn. They actually, it says that, Um, Like it says in that passage that they would go be with the king and then after that they wouldn't return to the same harem, that they would go to where the concubines were. So which the concubines is actually defined as a woman who lives with a man who's got a lower status than his wife or wives. So they weren't even treated the same afterwards. And it was only that if the king was pleased with them that maybe they would get a chance to see them again. So essentially they go through this process and then they're having to live out the rest of their time in the harem essentially as widows. They weren't allowed to go and marry another man or start a family or have any of that. They are stuck here. Some pretty dark and wicked stuff. And again, maybe a few of them may have chose that. We're not sure to escape whatever other brokenness they were going through. But it wasn't all that it's pictured to be. 
And, it, and it's even kind of hard and uncomfortable to talk about it and because this whole process of it, I mean, it's this disgusting, wicked thing that they're taken to the king and their you know, purity is being stripped of them and, and all of this process just to fulfill the desires of this king. And you look at this and, and you're like, Okay, again, man, like, is God involved? Like, where is God at through all of this? How is this king just continuing to get away with it time and time again? But God is still reigning. God is still sovereign. And just because you don't always hear God doesn't mean that God isn't still working. To the point, the story of Esther, it shows us in the outworking of God's plan that God can use the evil of man. Even this evil, dark thing. That he didn't make Asherus drunk or make him demand that his queen present herself in an unmodest way before all the lords of the kingdom. No, yet God allowed this action, this wicked action of man, and he takes what scripture says, what he takes what the enemy meant for evil, and God can use it for good. So even in the evilness of all that's taking place, God can still find a way to work and to use it for his good and for his glory. And that's what we're going to see through the life and through the story of Esther. But also you need to understand the same is true for your life. Whatever situation you've been walking through, whatever brokenness you're in or situation, like just because God isn't present doesn't mean that God isn't working. Just because you can't hear him, just because he may not be responding to you doesn't mean that his plan isn't still working out. Again, this was a four-year time, even between chapters one and two, to where I'm sure in that season it felt like, man, God is silent, we're seeking justice, but then still even after that, it didn't get much better. But God is still working. So verse 15. We see Esther come onto the scene and she gets entered into this process. And it says, when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, I'm not going to say that name because I don't know how, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to the king Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month of the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all of his nobles and officials, and he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Despite all of this brokenness, despite all of this wicked and evilness that's taking place, God is still working. When you look at the story of Esther's life and you see what is going on, and and again, Esther may have been in this season where, man, it just feels like she's having setback after setback after setback after setback. If you could scale out and show Esther this thousand foot view that, hey, yes, I understand it looks like you are facing trial and tribulation after trial and tribulation, but listen, don't lose hope because I still have a plan. God is still working. And that through all of the wickedness and the evilness and the brokenness, God is still faithful and true in Esther's life. See, I think too often in our lives, we always focus on the things that are out of control. That we get so caught up in focusing on, man, I'm in this situation and God, why aren't you moving and where are you at? And listen, you can, you can ask my wife, there's a big difference in asking for something and looking for something because I get guilty of that all the time. Like, 
wives, if you're out there and you can relate, if your husband's like, babe, have you seen this? Hey, do you know where I put that? And it's always like, have you looked with your eyes? Because it's right there on the table in front of you. There's a big difference in asking and looking. And I think we get so caught up in situations where we're like, God, where are you at? God, what are you doing? God, I can't hear you. God, I can't see you. Are you even present? Are you moving in my life? But what if we flipped our perspective and realized that if we would just shift our perspective, we would see that there's power in that perspective to see that there's a difference in asking and looking. What if in the situation you were walking in, Maybe the trial and the tribulation you're in, you started, instead of asking God, where are you? You started looking, okay, God, where are you? God, in this moment I'm in, in this season I'm in, what are you doing? How are you setting me up for something that you want to do? God, how could you use me? See, there's something funny about what I like to call the parent perspective. Right? Parents have this different perspective than their kids. Where the kids, it's like, Man, they're always asking questions. I love my little girl. She's two years old. And um, uh, she always comes up to me and she'll go, what are you doing? Dad, dad, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just sitting right here with you. Same thing I was doing three minutes ago when you asked. Like, I'm, I'm right here. And she just has this ask. But what she's really wanting to know is like, what is the plan? Can you tell me the plan? And I'm like, babe, there is no plan. We're just going to hang out today and I'm going to spend time with you. But, but it's so easy for us to get caught up in that childlike perspective where we're always trying to figure it out. And sometimes I think God is just sitting there, hey, listen, I have the plans taken care of. If you would just trust me and allow me to walk with you. Listen, I know you're in the middle of this storm. I know you're in the middle of this tribulation. I know this doesn't seem, it seems like I might not be listening or I might not be present, but I want you to know that I'm here. And it's for your good, and there, there's a purpose behind it. This summer, the beginning of this summer, um, we had the opportunity to put Sedona, my two-year-old little girl. Um, by the way, last time I was up here, I spoke to you guys, and um, I didn't have my second child yet. She was still in the oven, and um, now she's out. May 14th was her birthday, and so um, she's over there with my beautiful wife. Um, but it's still flu season, so keep your distance, please. Love you. Um, no, just kidding. <laughs> but she is a newborn. Um, but anyways, we had the opportunity, um, before baby Selah came to take Sedona, my two-year-old little girl, to swim school. And where are all my parents out there? If you've ever taken your kid through swim school, can I just get a show of hands? Bless you, okay? Bless you. And, and specifically, you moms, because the reality is, is like, it was a good chance you probably did it. I'm not hating on the dads, like, we'll show you love next week, it's Father's Day. But for today, like, specifically the moms, because y'all are just built different, okay? I really believe, like, God did some things in you and allowed you to do some things, because I'm soft. Like, I'm so soft. When it comes to my two little girls, like, I just, I melt, I give in every time, like, they are daddy's girls and I, I cave. And my wife is like, you need to be a little bit tougher sometimes, like it's for their good. And I'm just like, I, I can't, I, I lose every time. Um, it's it's a, like, I don't know how to beat it, okay? Um, but so we go to the swim school and my little girl is so excited. Like she is pumped. Um, we're talking about, man, we're gonna go to swim school, like Nemo and Luca and like, it's gonna be awesome. Those are Disney, like little movies. If you haven't watched Disney in a really long time, um, it's new ones. They're pretty good. Check them out. Anyway, so we're encouraging her. And in this process, like, she's showing up. She's so excited. 
But then we get there. And all of a sudden, like, just the temperature of the room changes. Like, there's all these kids around the pool, and it's like this cloud of fear just struck all of them. And, like, they all start crying. Like, every single one. And if you teach a swim class in here, like, bless you, you are incredible and built so different. And I don't know how you do what you do or if you have emotions, because it, like, I I don't get it. Um, But... Literally, they go and they're just all just crying and crying and crying. And like, like you feel this kind of parent guilt of like, is this the right thing to do? And I wish I would have shown you a video, but I didn't need all of your judgment of like, oh my gosh, because like you would think we were straight torturing the kids, okay? Like every single one of them was crying. And so I was just like, you know, let's just not show a video of it. But you get in this situation And we're like, man, is she even learning anything? And so we're about four days into it. And all of a sudden we're like, we have a pool in our backyard. And so we're like, we'll we'll go swim in the pool. And granted, up until she had went to swim school, like she was terrified of the pool. Wouldn't get in it, didn't have any fun with it, which is what drove us like, okay, we need to get her comfortable with this. Otherwise we will melt this summer. Like we won't make it. Like we will die, all of us. Um, And so we take her through this swim school and um, we get home and she is like a different person at home. She's swimming with me and all of a sudden she's like jumping into the pool by herself. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, like, hey, chill out, girl. Like, I'm not that good. Like, you know, I'm trying to hold on to her and she's kicking and scooping and all the things she's learned. And then all of a sudden we go back to swim school the next day. And I'm like, okay, thinking at home it broke. She's happy. She's cool with it. We get there, falling again, throwing a fit, total fear. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And so we start to ask her, because, you know, she's pretty talkative, and, she'll, she'll, and we're like, baby, like, you know you don't have to cry, right? Like, are you, are you just pretending? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you pretending? Like, is it because everybody else is crying? Yeah. And I'm like, you don't have to fake pretend. You can have fun. And he's like, no. Like, everyone's crying, so she wants to cry. And we just, I'm like, what is going on here? Like, this is just, but I feel like too often we can get in the same thing where we get so affected by this culture around us that is like, hey, if you are like, whatever you're going through, we just match the temperature of it. And all of a sudden, man, we get in the biggest pity parties and we start throwing fits and and we're like, well, it shouldn't be my way. And culture has created this me mentality that if the slightest thing offends me, or I don't like the way it looks, like I'm allowed and justified to throw a tantrum, and like we've just created this horrible culture. But it's so easy for us to get caught up in it. It's so easy to give into the motions of it. I mean, even for me, like I can wake up, I can have the best day in the world, a great morning, hanging out with my little girls, get up, we go to the donut shop, we get our sprinkled donuts, we're having a great day, and then I like go to the grocery store. And all of it, yes, yes, uh-huh, get to the grocery store. And all of a sudden, like, I leave the grocery store, and I don't know what happened in that moment or who I ran into or what, but I come home, and I'm just angry. I'm cranky. Like, I'm just in a bad mood. And it's like, what happened to you? And it's like, well, you know, this person cut me off here, and then this person took forever in line, and da 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 And it's all of a sudden, like, what I went from having this great attitude to the littlest thing, like, set me off, and I just bought into the culture of whatever was happening at the grocery store. And I just feed into that desire. But what would it look like if, if instead of that, if, man, we set ourselves apart, if we looked like something different? Because Esther's in this situation where, man, like, she had to earn, it says that she had favor. 
that she won favor with everyone she saw. Some would say it was her beauty. Some would say it was persona, personality. But God had given her and placed her in those moments and in those opportunities for a reason. Where she was to that very exact moment was not outside of the hand of God. He knew exactly what he was doing. And despite all of the evilness and all of the brokenness, he was setting up a plan for his freedom and redemption. And as we begin to wrap up this morning, as the band comes back up, the same is true for you. There are a lot of things in life and a lot of situations you go through that are simply just out of our control. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's some situations that are going on with your kids. Maybe it's a spike in gas prices and your finances. And there are things that are just simply out of our control. And I think too often we focus on what we can't control rather than focusing on what we can. See, Proverbs 3, 3 through 5, it says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. I love this part of verse four and five. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Too often we have that childlike attitude where we want the understanding. God, I need you to tell me what you're doing. God, I need to know what's next. God, where are you? Why aren't you working? But what would it look like if we just trusted in the Lord with all of our heart in the middle of our trials, in the middle of our tribulation? We didn't lean on our own understanding, but we, it says, submit all your ways to him and he will make your path straight. You see, there's a reason that we put our daughter in swim school. And as a parent, I mean, we're watching her go through this. We're watching her cry and, and it felt like we're almost torturing her. And it's like, are, are we wrong for doing this? Like we're willingly taking her and letting her go through this. But one thing I loved about this swim school that we went to is they were different. During the middle of this, these kids are crying and they're screaming and all of it but the the teacher never changed their perspective. The teacher would open up the class with prayer and they would say, okay, we're gonna honor God and we're gonna pray for today. And they would open up their swim class with prayer. And then the entire time that this kid is kicking and screaming and crying and, and just throwing a fit in the pool, they're like, you are so brave. You are a daughter of the King. You are so strong and courageous and God loves you and you can do this. And they're just speaking this truth of God over my little girl's life in the midst of her fit, in the midst of her fighting, in the midst of her storm. They just began to speak this truth. And I just, me and my wife, we looked at each other like, hey, if she doesn't yet ever learn to swim, we can at least say that God's truth and his word were continually spoken over her during the middle of the situation. And what a lesson that is. What if instead of being so focused on the situation we were going through, we fixed our focus on what we could control and that's us and our response. And we just began to speak the truth of God over our lives that God, while I know it doesn't look like you're here, I know know you're working. God, while I know I can't see you, God, you have a plan. God, I'm trying not to lean on my own understanding, so I'm gonna trust you. God, I'm gonna put love and truth and faithfulness, I'm gonna bind them to my neck. Proverbs 3, 5 says, I'm going to write them on the tablet of my heart. Because God has placed you in the season and the trial and the tribute. He's allowed that to happen for a reason. See, we allowed her to go through that swim school with the intention that she would have freedom the rest of the summer to enjoy the pool, 
to cool off, to have fun, to kick and to splash. But she had to go through that process of swim school in order to experience freedom on the other side. In order for her to enjoy the pool and walk in the fulfillment of it all, she had to go through that process. Here's the same truth. that because of our sin, there was a process that had to take place. There was trial and tribulation that had to take place. See, our sin separated us from God. But John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That a death that we owed, that we deserved because of our sin, that he sent his son Jesus to pay that price. And that in our place, Jesus took our place so that we could have the free gift of God, which is eternal life, so that we could walk in freedom. So I don't know where you're at in here today. I don't know what season you're walking in. Maybe today, I mean, you just need to fix your perspective. Maybe today you just need to come before the Lord and ask God to just, to just shift your focus, that you would just bind his love and his truth upon your heart and that you would stop seeing everything as a setback and try and figure out, okay, God, what are you setting me up for? What doctor are you wanting me to run into today that I can share the love of God with? What coworker have you placed me next to that I can be an example of what it looks like to be different and set apart? God, where are you calling me? Where have you placed me in this season? Maybe it is in trials and tribulation, but God, what are you trying to do in me right now? And maybe instead of asking God, where are you? We start looking for him with intentionality. God, how do you want to use me right now? Because the same way God does in Esther's life, he is setting her up so that her and her people can walk in freedom. but she had to fix her perspective. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're in the middle of this storm and you just need the freedom. Listen, the reason God sent his son Jesus is so that you could have a relationship with him. His desire was never that you walk through that storm on your own. His desire was that he would have a plan for your life, that you would come to know him, that you would put your faith and your trust in him so that he could save you, that you could spend eternity in heaven with him. And so maybe in here today, for the very first time, you just need to surrender it all. You just need to submit everything over to him to just surrender your life to him. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed as we wrap up today, I just want to give each of you a moment to respond. We're going to have some pastors up here and some of our staff up here to just pray with you. Maybe you're in here and maybe you've just been crying because everybody else around you is crying. And maybe today you just need to fix your perspective and ask God to speak in. Maybe today though, that's not you and you actually are walking through some really hard, dark, challenging seasons. Maybe for you, it's just this encouragement of hope that, listen, God is still present. 
that even when you can't see him, he's still working. That even despite the evilness and the brokenness of this world, God is still present, that he still has a plan, but ultimately his plan was Jesus and he fulfilled that for you on the cross. And maybe today you just need to surrender it all. And so as we sing through this last chorus together, as a band and as our staff and pastors up here, I just wanna give you an opportunity and a moment to respond. Whatever it is God is doing in your life, if it's to surrender for the very first time today, come and tell one of the, our staff, come and tell one of these pastors here. Just say, I need to surrender it all to Jesus. If it's you're just in the middle of some challenging storms and you just, you just need the presence of God to overwhelm you, you just need to give him power in your perspective to see how he can use you in that season and encourage you. Just come to the Lord.